their seats. <clears throat> we'll, uh, <laughs> we'll begin with prayer. Make sure I'm on. Yep. So we'll begin with prayer here this morning. We'll bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this morning. We thank you that we can gather together and learn more about your word. Lord, we do pray um, as we look at the white throne judgment that you'd help us to learn that you've saved us from this, that you've saved us from the wrath to come the moment that we fled to Christ by faith. We also ask, Lord, that you'd help us to think clearly about when these things occur. Help us to help our our millennial brothers and sisters out of their error. And I do pray, Lord, that if there are any in that error, that they would see this, the truth from your scriptures, and they would come out of that. So we do pray for the ability to think well upon your text this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Now, today we're going to be continuing talking about the white throne judgment. And one of the reasons I think this is an important message about the white throne judgment is we want to discuss that there really are only unbelievers at this judgment, but many of those in Christendom today, whether they're amillennialists or postmillennialists, they do believe that this is a judgment that all believers and unbelievers will go to. Now, that's a big difference as to whether or not believers and unbelievers are at the same judgment. And so one of the reasons we want to show you that only believers, or excuse me, unbelievers will be at this judgment is to show you that we can know and we don't have to divide over eschatology. Why? Because we're not postmodern. We can actually come to firm conclusions and say, this is what the text says. So I'll be proving to you that at the white throne judgment, there are only unbelievers. There will never be a believer at the white throne judgment. And the, what, what, what's interesting is you'll see that on millennials to try to claim otherwise end up distorting other areas of scripture to do so. So you'll see that. Now, I want to do a little review with you. Remember, we left off with this idea of the white throne judgment, and I compared it to the book of Daniel, because in Daniel chapter 7, if you remember, you also have this scene where you have the father who appears to be white. He's on the throne, and then he gives all authority and rule and the power to judge to his son. And so this look back to Daniel 7 is really the backdrop to what we can interpret Revelation 20. In other words, it's the same throne room scene. Okay, so that's what we looked at first. Now, I want to begin, though, here today. This is the slide we left off on. And my contention is that this white throne judgment, only unbelievers will be here. Okay, let's read it again. Revelation 20, verse 12. Notice John says, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. Now, one of the things I mentioned last time is notice this term in the underlying standing. The fact that all of the dead here are standing at this judgment, I think, implies resurrection. Okay, now, if that's all you had to go on, you might say, well, they may be, it may be just a metaphor, but I think it really is the idea that they were raised. Now, here's why. Remember back in Revelation 20, verse 5, before the millennial kingdom, it talked about a first resurrection? Well, Here is implied the second resurrection. The second resurrection is only for unbelievers. If this is not when they're raised, well, then there's no second resurrection mentioned in the book of Revelation. Okay, so I think that what you're seeing here very clearly is the resurrection of all unbelievers where they're going to be judged. Now, the other thing I want to point out is notice this phrase, I saw the dead. We have to remember the link back to Revelation 20, verse 5. Now, why am I showing you this? Revelation 20, verse 5, which I have on the screen, that occurs, remember, was written prior to the millennial kingdom. Okay, so it talked about those who were raised with Christ. Remember, there were those who were beheaded for their faith. They were raised, they were all believers, and it talked about them being part of the first resurrection. Well, in Revelation 20, verse 5, it said, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. So when you see the reference to the dead here in Revelation 20, 12, it's the rest of the dead referred to in Revelation 20, verse 5, meaning they're unbelievers. Is everyone with me? So the rest of the dead in Revelation, let me pull up my pointer, make sure we're all looking at the same thing. The rest of the dead here in Revelation 20, verse 5, has to be the dead here in Revelation 20, verse 12. 
Okay, now, why is that important? Well, turn your Bibles to Revelation 20, verse 6. Let's look at the very next verse after Revelation 20, verse 5. You'll see why it's very important. Please turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 20, verse 6. Now, once you've turned there, notice what it says, Revelation 20, verse 6. It says, Blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Now, does everyone see there in Revelation 20, verse 6, blessed and holy? Could you say that unbelievers are blessed and holy? No. So this is a reference to only believers. Notice the second death has no power over them. They will be priests of God and and of Christ, and they'll reign with him for a thousand years. So certainly then the second death is what we're seeing here. It's going to be in Revelation 12, verses, I should say, 12 through 15. Okay, so this dead then is the rest of the dead. They are not blessed. They are not holy. These are those who did not partake of the first resurrection. Now, let me do a little logic. I wrote this in a syllogism form, and let me explain why I did that. In a syllogism, what you have are you have two premises, and you have a conclusion. And what's so neat about it is if you put it in valid form, if your premises are true, your conclusion is necessarily true. Okay, that's the power of a syllogism. Why? Because if the logic is valid, we call it a valid argument. But that doesn't mean it's a true argument because your premises could be wrong. In other words, you can construct an argument that's valid. The premises and all of the argument is in logical construction, but the premises aren't true. They don't comport to reality. All right? But if you have an argument that's structured correctly and the premises are true, they correspond to reality, then your conclusion is necessarily true. So that's the, that's the form I put it in. So let's listen to the logic. Here's premise one. We can learn this from what we've just read. All those who are dead in Revelation 20, verse 12, missed the first resurrection. Correct? How do we know that? Well, the rest of the dead, it said, did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. Behold, we come after the thousand years. Here's the dead. Well, they missed the first resurrection. So premise one is, in fact, true because the scriptures revealed that to us. So it's, it's correct. So second premise, all those who missed the first resurrection don't have eternal life. Why? Well, because they become partakers of the second death. Okay, that's premise two. Here's the conclusion. All the dead, therefore, that we're reading about in Revelation 20, verse 12, do not have eternal life. Okay, now, if my two premises are correct, the conclusion is necessarily correct. All right, now, here are the four fallacies that I could commit in this syllogism. I could have an illicit major, an illicit minor. I could have an excluded middle. I could have a four-term fallacy. Trust me, I didn't commit any of those fallacies. I looked at this at length. So all we have to do then is judge my two premises, and you can say, well, you know what? I don't think that that follows from the Scriptures. But if my two premises do follow from the Scriptures, the conclusion is necessary. Those in Revelation 20, verse 12, the dead, do not have eternal life. And I think that that is not only a valid then argument, it is a sound argument. A sound argument is one that's not only structured correctly, but the premises are true. And so what we can conclude then is those in Revelation 20, verse 12, cannot refer to believers. So why is a huge chunk of evangelicalism, Christendom, in the Reformed tradition saying that indeed this is a judgment where you have both believers and unbelievers? That's what amillennialists will tell you. It's impossible at any fair reading of the text. I'm sorry, Bob. Um, That certainly refutes amillennialism. It does. But if you are a premillennialist, yeah. I have a question. During the entire thousand-year period, does anyone die? Yes, absolutely. And, and then that yeah. creates another category of persons. Yeah, well said. In fact, what's interesting is we're going to see that both first and second resurrection isn't necessarily... There is a time issue. In other words, chronologically, the second comes after the first. But the first is more of a qualitative issue because it has to do with all believers. The second has to do with all unbelievers. What's interesting is the amillennialist has to say, well, the first resurrection is the resurrection of the soul. 
I should say soul. <laughs> I don't know, how do you point out soul? Um, it's the resurrection of the soul. The second resurrection, they would say, is the resurrection of the body. Okay, and, so, and we'll come to that. But, yeah, okay. so that's how so, I would answer so that. The other, yeah. There's another category we haven't addressed. Exactly. So I would say the first resurrection would incorporate the one that begins at the 70th week of Daniel. But it also you have these martyrs who die during the 70th week who are right. genuine believers, and then they come to faith. They're all part of the first resurrection. So the way I look at it is every believer is in a resurrected body by the time they go into the millennial kingdom. So then what happens is you're obviously going to have people that will die during the millennial kingdom, a lot of them unregenerate. They're going to go to the white throne judgment. But the, the, the text, nowhere in scripture does it talk about another resurrection for believers. Um, you don't think any believer dies during the millennium? It could be. It just doesn't state We don't know that. Okay. Yeah. That's so that's not something I'd have to say I don't know. But I do know that the first resurrection is for believers. The second resurrection is for unbelievers. And I'll, I'll prove that again as we keep going. Now, the other thing I want to point out here is notice this reference to the books in the box there. What's very interesting is in the Old Testament, God is often depicted as having books in which he keeps track of the deeds of the wicked. You see this in Isaiah 65, 6. Let me just read some of these to you. You can just jot them down in your notes. Isaiah 65, 6. This is a passage in which God is going to judge his enemies. He says, Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay. I will even repay into their bosom. So he's going to deeply affect them in judgment. Uh, Daniel 7, 10. Remember this whole scene of this throne room, judgment has its backdrop with Daniel 7. So they're connected. Daniel chapter 7, verse 10. It says, a river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. That's before God on the throne. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat and the books were opened. Now, one of the interesting things I think about these books, let's think about how that relates to God. Don't we believe that God is omniscient, that he knows all things? Well, certainly God knows all things. Does he need books to learn or to be reminded of something? Well, no. Now, I'm not saying that the books aren't literal, but we have to understand this is a form of an anthropomorphism. Now, let me just be clear. It's not a technical anthropomorphism. Anthropomorphism means a manism, okay, anthropos. So, for example, when it says in scriptures that God measured the universe with the span of his hand, that's an anthropomorphism. Why? Well, because we know God is spirit. Okay, now, does, it, does that passage say something true? Yes, God is the one who created all things, but it's using an anthropomorphism so that you and I can understand it. So, for example, when it says that God had forgotten or he remembered something, we know that God knows all things. These would be forms of anthropomorphism. So when we look at the idea of books, does God need a book? See, you and I need them. We need directories. We need books. We need things that we can go back and relate to. But the reason this is put in here is it's emphasizing the fact that God does not forget. He does look at the deeds of all of the unregenerate. And so these books, I think they're real, but God doesn't need them. They are highly symbolic in that he will never forget the deeds of those who haven't fled to Christ. That's one of the beautiful things that you and I have. The moment we fled to Christ, we were in the book of life. And so the books that are open for us about our deeds are not going to be judging us as to whether we go to heaven or hell. So again, this judgment is about the unregenerate. It's about where they go. In fact, notice the contrast here. Notice you have, let me pull up my pointer again. You have in the box books in red. Well, then you have the book of life. So the idea is if you're not written in the book of life, that happens by faith alone and Christ alone, you're going to be judged by the books, and in fact, it's according to what you have done. The word done there, literally, ergon in the Greek, is deeds or works. Okay, you're going to be judged according to what you have done. So, think about it this way. Believers, we are judged by what Christ did once and for all for us. The unbeliever here is going to be judged according to what they had done, their works. And Bob and I have often said this, and a lot of the teachers here that teach a gospel of grace will say, look, every other religion outside of biblical Christianity is a works-based religion. Okay, so what people are doing basically is they're saying, look, I don't want the grace of Christ to cover me. I don't want to be clothed in his finished work. I'll go on my own. 
That's what they're saying. And what God is saying, well, then I'll judge you according to that. And then we know the truth of that. Every single person has fallen short of the glory of God and has sinned according to Romans 3.23. Now, let's talk about works in the terms of believers. Now, again, this judgment is only for unbelievers, but remember Ephesians 2.8 through 10. Ephesians 2.8 through 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So Ephesians 2.8 through 9, we're saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, by God's grace alone. But you get to verse 10, it says, For we, that's believers, are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, in his sphere, we're with him, for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should, what? Walk in them. So you and I were created for good works, but we're not being judged according to them. Why? Because we're being spared by the once and for all work of Christ. All right, so the irony is you and I will end up doing good works as believers all because God's gracious work through us. But what is said of the works of the unregenerate? Well, remember what we learned in Romans 8, 8, that those who are in the flesh, meaning they're outside of Christ, it says they cannot please God. There's nothing ultimately that they can do that's pleasing to him. Why? Because they're not clothed in the righteousness of the Son. Just like it said in Isaiah 64, 6, even our righteous deeds, Isaiah says, are like filthy rags. So even the righteous deeds of the unregenerate are tainted by their sin, and God never sees anything that they do that is pleasing to him in a a salvific way. Okay, so when they're judged according to what they have done, that is not going to be a good turnout for the unregenerate. That's what you and I have to understand in light of all of Scripture. Okay, so with that, let's keep moving here. We get to verse 13. We see that death and Hades are judged. It says, And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Now, first of all, notice this reference to the sea. The sea gave up the dead. And you'd think, well, wait a minute. Why doesn't he point out that the land gave up its dead? Why the sea? Well, remember the sea to the especially the Jew, was really representative of the abyss. Uh, think about it at the beginning of time in Genesis. God's spirit was hovering over the waters. And remember the earth at that time was void. And this idea of chaos is represented by water. And so water often depicts the abyss. When Jesus casts out the, the demons out of the pigs, or into the pigs, I should say, from the human being, where does he send the swine? He sends them into the sea. So it literally happens, but it's also symbolic. Why? Because the sea represents the abyss. So the Jews, they didn't like the sea. In fact, if you go there today, even in Israel, they, they, will, they live in Tel Aviv and you see structures by the sea, but it's not like what Americans would do. We love the sea, we, we just, but they don't. Okay, so the sea represents the abyss. The Romans were afraid of the sea. So that's why I think John is pointing this out, that even the sea are going to give up their dead. Okay, there's no place to hide from God, as it were. Being in the sea does not hide you from the wrath of God, even though in the folk war of the Romans and the Jews, being in the sea somehow hid you from the supernatural realm. It hid you from the blessing of God. What John is pointing out that that's not true. You can't be hidden from God. So the sea gave up its dead. Now, the one thing we have to wrestle with here is what is death and Hades? Here, death and Hades are being personified. Okay, what is personification? Well, it's taking an inanimate object and treating it as if it's a person. So notice the phrase that gave up. It gave something. If your car gives you something, is it, is it literally giving a handout and saying, well, here, I'm going to help you out? No, your car may give you good service, but it's an inanimate object. Well, here, death and Hades, there aren't people, but they're being personified. The one issue we have to wrestle with is what is death and Hades? They're used together earlier in Revelation 6, 8, and this is the way I read it, there are really three options. The first option interpreting this phrase death and Hades is it could be what we refer to as a hendiadus. Hendiadus from the Greek means one, here's the dia, it's a preposition, through dis, which is two. So it would be the idea of one idea through two words. So the idea is you have two words, death and Hades, but they have one idea, it's the realm of the dead. Okay, a lot of scholars think that that's what's being referred to, that death and Hades are really referring to the same thing. 
Now, the other option, of course, is to see them as being distinct, that death and Hades are two different things. Now, to be fair, when we look at the data in the scriptures, death and Hades are often related, but I think we could say there's a third option, that they're related, but there's a different nuance. And so here's how I would interpret it. I think death is the state. In other words, it's the people who have a separation of body and soul. They're physically dead. Their bodies and souls are not united. They're physically dead. That's the state they're in. That's death. Hades is the location or the realm in which this dead group of people are. So Hades throughout Scripture... And we don't have a lot of data to go on regarding Hades, but Hades seems to be the temporal holding place for the unregenerate, the unbeliever, where they're going, I should say they're undergoing temporal punishment. Yes, Eric. Is this uh, similar to in the Old Testament, you've got uh, Sheol and Abraham's bosom? Absolutely. So you look at Sheol, there's kind of a blending where Sheol is just simply the grave. But then you start seeing, wait a minute, the the believers don't seem to go to Sheol or they're not abandoned to Sheol. They go to the grave, but there's a different sense that Sheol starts to take on. I think the same thing with Hades. Hades can sometimes just simply refer to the dead, the place of the dead. Let me give you an example of that. Do you remember in Matthew 16 at Caesarea Philippi? You have the confession of Christ. Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the... the, uh, How does he say it? Or wait. He says, who do you say that I am? He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That's how he says it. Okay? Well, do you remember, at that point, Jesus is right at the base of Mount Hermon, where the demonic are. And he says, I tell you, I'm going to build my church, and the gate of Hades will not prevail against it. I think Hades refers to death there. And so the idea is that not even death would be able to contain or restrict uh, the, uh, the growth of the church. Okay, so that's one area where Hades is, I think, certainly a reference to death itself. But I'll show you another place where it's temporal punishment. Yes, Barb. I'm sorry, this goes back a thought, but you were saying how that even the sea couldn't hide them from the wrath of God. Um, It made me think of Psalm 139. Um, where it says, if I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. So just the idea that the sea was not a hiding place. Well said, yeah. So there you have, and what's interesting is that, you know, he also says, if I send to the heavens, you you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. Where can I flee from your promise? That's one of the important texts in Scripture that shows the omnipresence of God. But what's interesting... When we talk about the sea, what's interesting is it's a fear that the Jews had, and it was unfounded. Does that make sense? In other words, biblically, we don't see that the sea is a place that you can hide from God, right? Or that you can be hidden from his blessing. But it's a fear that they, they had, and it really was representative of the abyss. So my point is, I think this is uh, John's way of condescending to some of their fears that were unfounded in light of Scripture. Yeah, yep. Very good connection, Barb. Yeah, so now let me... Um, oh, yeah, Eric, I'm sorry. Uh, David. Well, I was just wondering... Um, it, I was thinking of all the evil men in history, you know, like <laughs> Julius Caesar and Nero and yeah. Lenin and Joseph Stalin and on and on and on. Yeah. They will... Will they be judged more severely than... You know, somebody that was rejecting Christ, but they didn't do the magnitude of the evil that these people did? Absolutely. We see that there is levels of punishment. And we see that, for example, even when Jesus talks about those who should have received him. Remember, he talks about Chorazin and Bethsaida. They saw the great miracles that he had done. And so he says it will be more tolerable, tolerable in the day of judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah than you. He says, if they would have seen the miracles that you've seen, they would have believed. They would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. And so he does make the point that there is a greater culpability. Uh, so certainly for those who have been, been, been given greater revelation, there's a greater culpability and a greater judgment. So from that, we can deduce that there are levels of greater judgment and lesser judgment. And certainly, I think we could infer then that those who have done greater evil, like Pol Pot and um, Hitler, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, 
they will certainly incur greater judgment. Absolutely. And the same thing when we look at the the um, the Bema seat judgment, the judgment seat of Christ, in which only believers are at. We see that there's greater levels of reward in heaven. Not that all believers don't go to heaven; they do. But there's going to be different levels of reward as well. So, yeah, uh, the big thing, though, is in this life we want to flee to Christ, so we're, we go to heaven, and we're not under the wrath of God. But there are, there are consequences to how we live uh, according to the word of Christ here and now as well, so for, for all eternity. Very good. Okay, now let me have you turn your Bibles, if you will, to Luke 16. I want you to just see how Hades is referred to here, and certainly it's a place of torment. But I don't think uh, here in Luke 16, Jesus is referring to hell. Otherwise, he would have used Gehenna. He could have used Gehenna at least. Luke 16, verses 22 through 23. Now, remember, this is a parable, and it's a story designed to point to a great truth. One of the great truths is that here you have Lazarus, who was a believer, and you have this rich man, and this rich man wants to send someone back from the dead to go warn his brothers not to go to Hades. And Jesus says that they won't listen to the, the prophets and the law, neither will they believe even if someone is raised from the dead. So the point is, Scripture is really the final authority. It's all that we're given. They won't even believe if a man is raised from the dead. Christ is raised from the dead. They don't believe in that. So that's the main point of it. But notice here we can infer some things. Luke 16, 22 through 23, Jesus says, Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. Now stop there. Why is it important to go to Abraham's bosom? Because Abraham is going to be reclining with God in the Messianic kingdom. So if you're with Abraham, you're with those who recline with Messiah in the coming kingdom. That's why that's important. Now, notice it says, and the rich man also died and was buried. Now notice what it says. In Hades, it doesn't say in hell. He could have used Gehenna. He doesn't use that. He says in Hades, he lifted up his eyes being in torment and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. So notice there's a chasm between where Lazarus is. He's in a different place than Hades. Okay. Now, the man who is in Hades, this rich man, is in torment. And so when I take that and I look at Revelation 20, verse 13, what I would say to you is I think the best information we have is to say Hades sometimes refers to the grave. But sometimes it also refers to the place where the unregenerate go. So let's just do a little bit of individual eschatology. When a believer dies, death is separation of body and soul. But according to 2 Corinthians 5.8, it says to be absent from the body means to be present with the Lord. So the moment a believer dies before the rapture, your body is going to be going to the ground, but your soul immediately goes to be with the Lord. Okay, that's why Jesus said even to the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. All right? So that's where we go. But what happens to the unbeliever? Well, the moment they die, their body and soul is separated, but their soul goes to Hades. I think that that's what's being inferred here in Luke 16. So they're in this temporal holding place where only the unregenerate go. But what happens is at the white throne judgment, they're raised up from the dead. Their body and soul is put together once more. But it's not for the purpose of reigning with Christ and living forever. It's for the explicit purpose of going to the lake of fire. So they're given a resurrection for the purpose of suffering in the lake of fire forevermore. Okay? So that's individual eschatology. I think that that's the best reading on the data. Okay? Now, notice here, we also have in the box that these that were in death and Hades, notice it says that they were judged, every one of them according to their deeds. The term crino there for judgment, sometimes judgment can be just, well, you're deciding and judging as to what to do with the church. We see the term judgment used in that way. But the term crino here in context, I think, certainly has to do with the final judgment that comes upon the unregenerate. In other words, they're being judged in the sense that they're going to the lake of fire. Because why? Well, that's what we see in the very next verses. Verses 14 through 15, they're thrown into the lake of fire. Okay, so that's the kind of judgment that we see. Now, one passage I want to read to you. Remember John 3.16, the, the official Bible verse of the NFL? As you see in the NFL in the crowd, they'll often have John 3.16 up there. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Well, notice this. It goes on to say, for, good, for God, this is verses 17 through 18, 
For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, so here's the purpose, but that the world might be saved through him. Now listen to verse 18. It says, he who believes in him is not judged. They don't undergo crino. They're not going to undergo this judgment that you're reading about here in Revelation 20.13. Those who believe are not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already. Why? It says because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So there you have salvation by believing alone. And if you don't believe, you're judged. You will head towards this judgment, meaning you'll go to the lake of fire. The Bible's very clear. It's not ambiguous in any way. If you believe, you're not going to be judged at this judgment. If you don't believe in Christ, you're going to head towards this judgment. The reason I like citing John 3, 16 through 18 is John is the same author. And one thing you like to do if you're doing a word study, always begin in the same work. In other words, if John is writing something in Revelation, read what else he's written in 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and the Gospel of John to see how the terms are used. That's a good hermeneutic principle. Christy, I see he's got something. Uh, Yeah. So can you speak a little bit to the idea that you were talking about earlier that the unbelievers do not have eternal life, yet they have eternal existence, correct? We think of life as existing. Right, good point. And so they have, in a way, they have eternal death as separation from God. Is that? Well said, yes. Very good. So, and we'll, we'll talk more about this too as we go But, uh, in fact, on the next slide, I'll hit this issue again. So don't, I hope you bear with me if I get to some redundancy. But death is always depicted in Scripture as separation. It's not annihilation. And one way of thinking about it is sometimes you'll see um, in 2 Thessalonians 1, it talks about those who go to eternal destruction. Well, if you and I think of destroyed often as annihilation, but how can it be eternal? How can something be eternally annihilated? Once it's annihilated, it's annihilated. Well, destruction, even in the biblical language, has to do not with something that ceases to exist, but a change of its form. So that's what death is. Death is always depicted in Scripture as separation, not annihilation. So we have separation of Adam out of the garden when he sins. You have a separation from people and their God in a relationship. But when they physically die, there's a separation of their body and soul. Their body still exists in whatever form. Their soul, of course, exists, and they're aware. Okay, so death is not annihilation. So you're right. When we talk about eternal life, what we're talking about is a life that's abundant. It's with Christ. We have good things for us. We have not torment eternally, a resurrected body. Think about all the things associated with a resurrected body. We're going to be able to eat. We're never going to get sick. We're never going to feel pain, anguish. We're going to be with our God. All of those things have to do with life. But eternal death means to be separated from God, the source of life, forevermore where? In the lake of fire. Okay, so that's what eternal death is. So eternal death isn't annihilation. Some people are annihilationists. I don't think that they have a good reading of Scripture. Okay, some people also believe, by the way, in soul sleep. I don't think that that's a good reading of Scripture. Okay, sleeping is sometimes used for a metaphor for death, but it doesn't mean people are sleeping and they just wake up. No, it's death. That's what it's referring to. Yeah, Scott, so I hope, does that answer, Christy? Okay, and we'll come back to that on the next slide. Uh, Scott. Just, just to emphasize, the unbelievers, they're also resurrected with their immortal bodies in order that they can suffer in exactly. lake of fire yep. for eternity. Otherwise, they wouldn't be able to. Right. So... We're given a resurrected body to reign with our God and only incur good things. They're given a resurrected body to suffer eternally in the lake of fire. Okay? So their resurrection isn't unto good things. It's only unto torment. Day after day, day after day, that's what they have. And that's why we're commanded to preach the gospel. The gospel is the only way out of that. Okay? So, yeah, it's a very serious thing. And the resurrection for both the unbeliever and the believer is something that's taught in scripture certainly yep and i'm sorry anybody else okay now let me keep moving for the sake of time here let me go to this next verse here verses 14 through 15 notice it says now where does death and hades go they're being judged but now it gives us information as to what this judgment looks like it says then death and hades were thrown into the lake of fire this is the second death the lake of fire And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, 
he was thrown into the lake of fire. All right, now, notice here in red, you have this reference to the lake of fire. It's used three times in just these two verses. The lake of fire is referred to six times in the book of Revelation, three of which occur right here. Now, the lake of fire is really synonymous with what Jesus was teaching during his earthly ministry. For example, in Matthew 19.8, he refers to the, or excuse me, it's Matthew 18.9, he refers to the fiery hell. Okay, so he doesn't just use hell Gehenna, but he adds fire to it. So from that, I think we can infer that his reference to hell Gehenna is a reference to this lake of fire. So when you read what Jesus is referring to in his earthly ministry in the Gospels, when he refers to hell, he's really referring to the lake of fire. All right, now, one question that people often ask is, what is hell like? Well, we can't be, we don't know exhaustively what it's like. We're not given the metaphysics of it. But there are some things that we can know. One phrase that Jesus often uses during his earthly ministry when he refers to those who are in hell, this lake of fire, is he refers to them being in the place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. I forget. I think that phrase is used like eight times by Jesus in his earthly ministry. Now, what does it mean, this idea of weeping and gnashing of teeth? Well, I think it infers that hell is going to be a place, first of all, of weeping, which would mean that they're undergoing great sorrow. But it's also a place where there's gnashing of teeth. Now, when you gnash your teeth, it's because you're undergoing pain. So it's also a place of torment. And this torment and this sorrow are made even more acute in light of the fact of what Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 8. And that is the unregenerate who are in the lake of fire are going to be aware, I think, of what they're missing. The people of God are going to be with God, with Christ, banqueting, undergoing all the pleasures of heaven day after day after day. And yet they're going to be aware that they've been separated from that. According to Matthew chapter 8, there's an allusion to that. And by the way, Isaiah 65, I think, alludes to the same thing. And so that makes their torment even greater. So hell is a place... um, I, I told my son once, I was trying to put a little bit of fear of the wrath of God in him because I saw some things creeping up in his life. And I don't mean to, this isn't a normal conversation, so this isn't, I'm not trying to, you probably think, wow, you're some kind of parent, Eric. This is a really extreme thing I've never said to him before. But one day I was sitting in bed with him, and I thought, how can a child relate to what hell is? He hears about hell. But I, I, I just sat with him, because I, I was really concerned by some things he was doing, and I wanted him to realize why he fled to Christ, why he can have forgiveness of sins, why that's so important. So I described hell this way to him. I said, can you imagine the worst day that you've ever had where you're in pain and agony? And I said, accentuate that times a thousand like you've never felt. And I said, and realize that that's the only thing that you'll ever have day after day. And then be separated in darkness from all those that you love And only be surrounded by people who hit you, who hate you, who scourge you, who spit at you, who scoff at you. Be surrounded by the people of hell is not a good thing. It's not a party. I I would, would imagine it's no fun. And I said, can you imagine going through that day after day after day? I think about there was a woman who fled from a concentration camp and she actually hid in a latrine. Can you imagine she did that for days and the stench of that and how horrific that would be? And yet hell is so much worse. Why? Because it never ends. And when I told him that, you should see his eyes got real big. It had the desired effect, but I was trying to show you never get out of it. That's why fleeing to Christ is so essential. Bob one time said in a class, I'll never forget it. He talked about this in seminary. They're all talking about being relevant. We have to have ministries that are relevant. So Bob raises his hand. He says, well, since when has it been irrelevant to be spared from the wrath of God? If the wrath of God is really as bad as it's being depicted, and it is, that's the most relevant thing that you can be spared from. The the most relevant issue isn't taking from the haves and giving to the have-nots. It's not doing all the things that we think are important to have the best marriage, best life. Now, don't get me wrong, marriage is great and life is great now. But the most pressing issue every single person has is to be spared from the wrath of God so they don't end up in the lake of fire. That's why Jesus came. Yeah. You know, I, I think about, um, you know, non-believers that say, oh, you know, the Bible's full of all this, you know, terrible stuff. But, you know, God, in his love for us, he tells us the blessings that we have from salvation. Amen. So 
you know, but he gives us both sides of this. Yeah. And so we are either going to be saved through the love of virtue or the fear of reproof. Oh, yeah. And, and God knew what he was doing. He's telling right. us this. And, yeah. and, you know, it's just, it's, it, it's worth it to understand all of this. Right. This is exactly right, Eric. That's why Jesus said in Matthew ten twenty, do not fear who can destroy the body, which is what mankind can do. Satan could destroy your body. The angelic realm could destroy your body. Mankind can destroy your body. But he says, don't fear those who can destroy your body, but fear him, that's God, who can destroy your body and soul in hell. Notice he put the two together again, resurrection in hell. That's what he warned about. Yeah, Lonnie. Um, I notice uh, concerning hell in the Gospel of Mark, and I think it's only in Mark, and it comes out of Isaiah, I think, someplace. But Jesus talks about hell is where the worm never dies, and I think that's kind of (laughs) weird. Yeah. Yeah, I I agree. Again, I think, remember the the reference I just made to in in Matthew where Jesus often says the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, the worm that never dies plays on that second part, which would be the torment, the gnashing of the teeth. This idea that the pain never goes away, the worm that eats it never goes. It's just always there, persistent, day after day after day after day. You know, I, um, I don't mean to divulge my physical problems, but earlier this year I went through something that only 38 Minnesotans went through. It was called cyclospora, and it's where I had eaten a salad from McDonald's, and I, I shouldn't probably say that, I'm, but I think it was a McDonald's salad, and I got this parasite, and the parasite was like the worm that never dies. <laughs> it was brutal. And, um, and when you go through that, you're thinking, you know, Lord, come and take me, you know. And to think about going through that kind of agony with those types of descriptions day after day without relent, um, boy, it's, it just makes you realize how good we have at being saved in Christ. <laughs> to know that even one day cyclospore and all the things that we go through, that'll be done away. But it's going to be far worse for the unregenerate. This life is a tea party compared, all the sufferings in it are a tea party compared to what they'll suffer in the lake of fire. So, yeah, well said, Lonnie. Yes, Luann. And I just wanted to add, and I realize this is, you know, probably pretty basic, but, you know, the church is the holy bride of Christ. Yeah. And just like you were alluding to, the, their mission is to preach the pure, truthful gospel. Amen. And the Bible also talks about how the false teachers, you will know them by their deeds. And so this kind of goes out to people in the Catholic system. We are seeing the deeds of that system right now in 2018. And when we talk about what we're talking about, I mean, it is, it is so serious. I mean, I just, you know, it's heartbreaking because we have family members and friends and you can't warn them enough. Get out. Right. Amen. Well said. Yeah, you're right. They'll, they'll, You'll know the teachers by their fruit, and that's in Matthew 7. And the fruit I always like to refer to is both doctrine and deeds. They go hand in hand. In the scriptures, what you believe is, is what enforces what you, how you act. In other words, you act on what you believe. So you can't say, well, the, the deeds are just someone's actions, but it incorporates what you believe. So the unregenerate act out what they believe. They don't believe that they are answerable to a God. They don't believe that there is a God in heaven who is going to judge them. They act on that. And you're right, in the Roman Catholic Church, we're seeing the doctrines of demons acted out, uh, men who forbid marriage. Well, what does that lead to? Not good things. So you're right, the unregenerate will end up showing in their actions the repercussions of what they believe. And that's exactly what we see, I think, at the judgment seat as well here for the unbeliever. Yeah, Levon. I'm just thinking about, um, I wish my parents would have had a discussion with me like mm. you had, yeah. um, because I probably wouldn't have done a lot of things that I had done in my life. Yeah. Um, and I think of how God cannot look upon sin. He is so holy. Yeah. And it's like, um, I could not stand in a room where a baby is being aborted. I could not look on that. Mm. Um, and yet, to God, that's, that's, you know, not near as bad as what we do every day. Sure. So that, 
because of people reject Christ, this yeah. is what is going to happen to them, and it's it's very very frightening. Yeah, and Levon, I think what you're alluding to is the fact that God is holy, and so when we see evil, we're not holy as he is holy, uh, holy being set apart other than sin. And um, I remember my, my dad had a friend who he was trying to witness to. He was in his 80s at the time, and um, he wasn't well. He had a lot of illnesses and so forth. But this man said, well, I'm just going to go where my friend Fitz is going. I'm as good as he is. Well, my dad said, well, you're not being judged according to Fitz. Fitz isn't the standard. It's the Holy One of Israel. And so that's what we have to remember is when the unregenerate say, well, I'm not any worse than the next guy. Well, that's the problem is the next guy isn't as good as the Holy One of Israel. We're being judged according to the Holy One of Israel standards, not the next guy. It's not on a curve, right? The, the, the grading scale. Yeah, Bob. This is bugging me because you mentioned it and I can't find it. Yeah. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. What verse is Oh, that? yeah, uh, Romans 8.8. 8. Yeah, I know you and I have done radio on that. Yeah, yep. Yeah, very good. So, okay, so I'm sorry, let me keep going here for the sake of time. Now, notice here, I want to make a very important point that we all see this because it plays out to the logic of this text. Notice where it says, this is the second death, the lake of fire. So make no mistake about it, what is the second death? It's the lake of fire. Now, why am I laboring that point? Well, the second death is not a physical death. It's not a death where people are going to be just separated from God in some generic way. It's where they're thrown into the lake of fire. So the first death is a separation of body and soul. The second death is a separation from God in the lake of fire. I often give that in my gospel because that's the bad news. The bad news is first you have physical death, but the worst news that we need to be saved from is separation from God in the lake of fire. That's the second death. Okay, so death throughout Scripture is always seen as separation, not annihilation, as we were talking about in our discussion that Christy had raised. And I want you to see that. Turn your Bibles to Isaiah 59.2. I want you to see this idea of separation. That's what death is. Isaiah 59.2. Please turn your Bibles there. This is a great passage, by the way, to show people what death is and what sin causes. And as you're turning to Isaiah 59 too, think about when Adam was promised that he would die. He didn't physically die right away, but what happened is he was kicked out from the presence of God in the garden. There was a separation. Notice here in Isaiah 59 too, the prophet Isaiah says to the people of Israel, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. So that's this idea of separation. That's what death is. Again, death is not annihilation. Now think about Ecclesiastes 12.7. Ecclesiastes 12.7 says about the body, it says, then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the spirit is going to return to God who gave it. So notice the reference to death, even in Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament, is there's a separation. The physical goes into the ground, but the soul goes to be with the Lord. Soul and spirit, I think, are used interchangeably. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 8 again, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. There's a separation of body and soul. So that's what death is. It's separation. So the second death is separation from God in the lake of fire. That's where it is. Okay, now, I want you to make this connection as well. Revelation 20, verse 6. Notice on the screen, let's go back. This is before the millennial kingdom. And notice it says... Blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So let's do some logic again. Two more syllogisms that I want to give to you that I want to show you how this refutes our millennialism. Let's do our first syllogism. Let me give you two premises and a conclusion. What can we infer from this? Well, number one, premise one, all those who are in death in Hades take part in the second death. Okay, we saw that data. So is that premise true? Yes. Second premise, all who take part in the second death go to the lake of fire. Why? Well, again, on the screen, the second death is the lake of fire. Okay, therefore, what can we conclude? All those in death in Hades go to the lake of fire. 
So all those in death in Hades, therefore, must be unbelievers, because only unbelievers go to the lake of fire. Therefore, how can an amillennialist say both believers and unbelievers are at this judgment? And what we're supposed to do is to say, well, you know, everyone has their own interpretation. But their interpretation's wrong. <laughs> That's a problem. Two plus two isn't five. It never will be. Okay, the data is clear. Again, both premises are true. It's in valid form. I checked it. I didn't per- commit any of the fallacies. Therefore, if the premises are true, the conclusion is necessarily true. Therefore, you cannot have believers that are part of this judgment. Let me give you another syllogism. Premise one, all those who miss the first resurrection take part in the second death. We learned that. Okay, that's premise one. Premise two, all those who are of the second death go to the lake of fire. Here's the conclusion. Therefore, all those who miss the resurrection, I'm sorry, the first resurrection, go to the lake of fire. So if you miss the first resurrection, blessed and holy is he who is part of the first resurrection, for the second death has no power over them, you go to the lake of fire. So what is this nonsense about, well, the first resurrection, the amillennialist will say, is a resurrection of the soul. The second resurrection is a resurrection of the body. No, the first resurrection is a resurrection for the believer. The second resurrection is clearly the resurrection of what? The unbeliever. That's the best reading of Scripture. I'm sorry, someone had something. Brian. I have a lesser to greater argument. Oh, I love lesser to greater. Yeah, I know you do. That's why I just came up. I just made Uh, this up. That's right. Good, good. (laughs) So before the first resurrection, if you were separated from God, you could still lead a great life and have good things happen to you. Not going to happen before the, in, in the second death. Right. Right. Well said. So like Bob was talking about, even common grace, the unregenerate enjoy the rains and the sunshine. Right. Right. Exactly. There's no common grace that's going to be put forth on them in the lake of fire. That's right. There's an ending to it. And by the way, that's why the judgments we see in the past, like Sodom and Gomorrah and Noah's flood, uh, Bob gave a Sunday school once talking about exemplary judgments. Those serve as judgments that always remind us that even though God doesn't quash the sinner and crush them immediately when they sin here and now, those exemplary judgments always stand as an example to the world that one day God will judge again. Why? Because he's judged in the past, he's going to do it again in the future day of the Lord. So just because he doesn't wipe out the sinner immediately here and now, which is a good thing for me, (laughs) doesn't mean he will never judge sin. There's a day that is appointed in the, day of, in the future day of the Lord. Now, I want to contrast what we've just learned here with what the amillennialists believe. And I took this from a man who may be a relative of mine. His name is Inglesma. I'm a Duma. It's, I'm from Grand Rapids. This guy is too. All Inglesmas, Weersmas, and Dumas are somehow related. Dutch. If you're not Dutch, you're not much, right, Bob? That's not true. We're not much. <laughs> my voice isn't much. My, anyway, I've got health issues. But here's David Inglesma. He's reformed. And he believes that the first resurrection is a resurrection of the soul and the second resurrection is a resurrection of the body. And so he does that, and what he does, therefore, is places every believer and unbeliever at this judgment that we've been reading about, where I've just proven, no, you can't have believers at this judgment. So listen to what he says. He says, quote, there are two stages. The first is the resurrection of the soul. This is the first resurrection. He says, this is the resurrection of Revelation 20, verse 5. The second is the resurrection of the body. This is the second resurrection implied by the first resurrection of Revelation 20, verse 5. So is everyone with him? Now, listen, he keeps going. He says that the soul is going to go to heaven. And listen to what he says. Quote, he says, the taking up to heaven of the soul of the believer at death is indeed a resurrection. There is an act of the risen Christ upon the soul at the instant of death, purifying it from all sin and transforming it from a soul adapted to earthly life into a soul adapted to heavenly life. Now, let's stop there for a moment. Let's just ask ourselves the question, where in the world is he getting this from? What scripture verse do you see in the Bible that says, at death, Christ has to transform our soul and adapt it to, from earthly life to a heavenly life. And what's more, he also says that it's required to wipe our sins away. That happens at death. 
wait a minute, I thought that our sins were wiped away the moment we believed. Isn't that why Peter preached at Pentecost? Remember, you see this in Acts 3, 319. He says, turn and return to the Lord so that your sins may be wiped away. Our sins are not wiped away at our death so that we, our soul can go to the Lord. Our sins are wiped away the moment we believed. So where is this David Inglesma, this professor of systematic theology at a Reformed seminary, where does he get this idea that there is a resurrection required for the soul to go to be with the Lord? What scripture verse? He doesn't cite the scripture. He cites the Heidelberg Catechism. Heidelberg Catechism, question number 57, what happens to the soul after death? This is where he gleans it from. From the Heidelberg Catechism, it says, my soul after this life shall be taken up to Christ its head. Well, we would agree with that, but I wouldn't call that a resurrection. So let's think about it. At the cross, there's a person who comes to faith. He's a thief. And remember, Jesus says, today I'll tell you, you'll be with me in paradise. He didn't have to wait for the resurrection at the end to go to be with the Lord. Uh, Paul, in fact, said in 2 Corinthians 5, 8, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. Um, We see, in fact, when Jesus refers to the place that the thief goes to, he says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Notice it's not in Hades. It's not in a place of temporal torment. It's where he's going to be with the Lord in paradise. So, again, I want you to think about what's going on here. This man is distorting the gospel for the sake of his eschatology. He's trying to say that you're purified once you die not the moment you believed. You're purified at death, not at conversion. Why? Because he has to try to preserve amillennialism. So amillennialism has, I would say, some deleterious effects on the rest of soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. Yes, Lonnie. Um, could, I don't know. He, he's a, quite an educated man, but could he get mixed up with sanctification. We'll have total sanctification when we die as a Christian. We, are, we were saved. We were washed from our sin, but we are continually sanctifying ourselves, like as the scripture would say, working out our salvation. And uh, when we die, we will be totally sanctified. I, I, I would agree with you if he would use that language. Here's the problem. is he uses two phrases that don't match. One, he refers to this as a resurrection, resurrection of the soul. Well, I don't see anywhere in Scripture that we have a resurrection of the soul, that the soul, he actually says that it has to be caught up and has to be lifted up by Christ to be brought to heaven. That's a resurrection. Well, I don't see anywhere in Scripture where it emphasizes that kind of resurrection. The resurrection in Scripture is the reuniting of that which has been separated, body and soul. That's the resurrection. Um, Yeah, so that's the first problem with it. The other problem I would have is his phrase, needed to be purified of sin. Okay, well, wait a minute. That's something that occurred the moment we believed. The moment we believed, our sins were forgiven. That doesn't happen at death, it happens at conversion. Ironically, it happens where we have life. We have eternal life. So um, that's, that's the problem. It's the language that he's using. And again, he's trying to get around the plain meaning in the scripture. He has to come up with what kind of resurrection could the first resurrection be. If it's what you and I claim it is, he has to be a premillennialist. He has to be a premillennialist. In fact, he says it in his writings. If, in fact, the resurrection is a resurrection from the dead, the premillennialists will probably write. We can't have that. You can't have all that. So that's the problem is this wayward eschatology is leading to a wayward soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. That's my, my problem with it, and that's why I want to expose it to you. Now, let me, oops, we're out of time here, aren't we? Well, we'll continue our rebuttal of amillennialism, and we'll look at the logic of this text again. But the big issue I want you to see here, what I hope you come away with, is the idea at the white throne judgment, the believer cannot be there. This is a judgment exclusive given for the unbeliever and it's all unbelievers therefore that are going to be going to the lake of fire well let's bow our heads in prayer heavenly father we do thank you lord that through faith in christ we've been spared from this lake of fire that's eternal we thank you lord that you've loved us so that you sent your son that he would live the perfect life that we cannot that he would go to the cross and die 
a substitutionary death once and for all, the just on behalf of us, the unjust, in order that we might be brought to God. We thank you for these great truths. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.